This is Remembering Yugoslavia, the show exploring the memory of a country that no longer exists. I'm your guide, Peter Korchnak. Socialist Yugoslavia after 1948 stood outside Soviet Union's orbit. It was more open, free and prosperous than Eastern Bloc countries like my native Czechoslovakia. But it was still a country under one-party rule, and not everyone liked that. When it comes to Yugoslav dissidents, the one name that towers over them all is that of Milovan Džilas. A prominent partisan and Tito's comrade, he was in line to become Yugoslavia's next leader when, in the 1950s, he penned harsh critiques of the system. He labeled the regime totalitarian, named state officials the new elite, profiteering off the system, and called for the country's democratization. He was expelled from the party's central committee, stripped of all his functions, and ended up spending many years in prison. He then withdrew into a quiet, dissident life until his death in 1995. Gilas may have been Yugoslavia's most prominent dissident, but there were hundreds of Yugoslavs who opposed the regime's policies and practices. They tended to come from the ranks of the intelligentsia, they were urban, educated. But anyone who Tito and his cronies perceived as a threat suffered consequences, from diminished career prospects, to loss of employment, to passport confiscation, all the way to prison, and in some cases, death by the secret police. Today we're going to look back at dissent and at the memory of dissent in Yugoslavia with one such activist, Svetlana Slapšak, who spoke with me from her home in Ljubljana, Slovenia. I could fill an entire episode just by reading her bio. This is where she's at today. I'm retired. After I uh, formally ended my academic career, I uh, started to do other things and uh, I went back to writing of literature and uh, I continued my academic writing and so I'm expecting with the time left to do whatever I can. Before we jump back to the beginning of Slapshack's story, a reminder that you made this conversation possible. If you've joined Remembering Yugoslavia as a monthly sustaining supporter on Patreon or donated one time via PayPal, thank you. You're like those dissidents doing something extraordinary in an ordinary world. If you're still undecided, I invite you to do whatever you can with the time you have left to support Remembering Yugoslavia and me in making it. The podcast is a labor of love and conviction that takes a lot of time, energy, and hard work. It remains free and commercial-free thanks to listener generosity. So if the podcast enriches your life in any way, make a contribution at rememberingyugoslavia.com slash donate today. Svetlana Slapšak was born in 1948 in Belgrade. I'm from a poor family, let's say, and not a nomenclatura fam- family. It was a family of women, basically my grandmother, my mother and I, and then there was my stepfather and before was my father for a short time. Anyway, it was a family in which ideology was not uh, playing any role, but uh, there was a very strong Yugoslav feeling. My family comes from Serbs in Croatia, which were um decimated during the second world war and my grandfather was uh, exemplary executed at the beginning of the independent state of croatia so my grandmother had this idea of men being completely stupid when it comes to politics <laughs> because they tend to kill themselves in it and she was yugoslav she never hated anything croatian i never heard anything bad about croatians and my love for croatia <laughs> of course comes from there Slapšak has a doctorate in classical studies and linguistics from the University of Belgrade. 
Over her 50-plus year career, she has written 70 books and more than 400 studies in linguistics, classical studies, comparative literature, balkanology, gender studies, and food. Her book in Serbian, Cabbage, a review of the historical anthropology of food and sexuality, is high on my reading wish list. Plus over 1,500 essays and commentaries, as well as three novels and two plays. She also translates from ancient and modern Greek, Latin, French, English, Slovenian, and the BCSM languages. She has taught in universities around former Yugoslavia, Western Europe, including the Sorbonne, and the U.S., including Rutgers. She is also a lifelong human rights activist. In socialist Yugoslavia, she was beaten, arrested, and deprived of her passport a number of times. She again lost her job and became a pariah under Milosevic. In 1991, she left Serbia for Slovenia, where she is an outspoken critic of the Yansha government. Pan America lists her among writers at risk with the status in exile. So what keeps you going? What's the driving engine? What's the motor? There's one thing that always pushes me ahead, and that is uh, uh, the ancient studies. <laughs> that is the combination of um, democracy, concepts of democracy over the history of ancient worlds, position of women, freedom, uh, different philosophical concepts which are not dead today, on the contrary. Humanism, uh, men as uh, a possible center, but not the ruler <laughs> in the world. <laughs> and, of course, the, the beauty of the text and the wit of the text that, yes, anytime you, you take an ancient text, you can promise yourself uh, a reflective 10 years ahead. Slapshak was in her second year of university in 1968. When I witnessed the student uprising in Belgrade, learned a lot and changed my life. Mirroring events around the rest of Europe and the world that year, the June 1968 student protests in Belgrade were the first mass protests in socialist Yugoslavia. Students, supported by prominent cultural figures, protested against the imperfections of the regime, demanding freedom of assembly and speech, criticized the recent economic reforms, and striked about conditions at the university. Smaller, parallel protests erupted in Zagreb and Sarajevo. So what was it about 1968, about those protests, and what formed your position, and what was your position? Uh, well, my position was, uh, I was an idiot, basically. <laughs> Idiot, we just, you know, decided to, to do the ancient studies. I was still thinking about uh, between archaeology and classical studies, and luckily I went for classical studies, but later on I married an archaeologist, so I didn't escape it totally. Anyway, it started, and uh, I decided to go and see what was on. And uh, it was extremely interesting for me. Everybody was speaking in terms of early Marx, Marx uh, and... Um, Lots of reading of Hegel and other authors, not only Marxist authors. It was deeply intellectual and it was horribly masculine. It was unbearable. <laughs> in fact, in one of the uh, sessions in the court of the School of Philosophy, there were two women that I know that started wanted to start a debate about feminism and they were booed. And that was my decision, uh, except for the spontaneous feminism from my grandmother and my mom. So I became a very, very early, let's say, feminist. The other thing that I was just listening and looking at things. 
And I, yes, I became adept, but I was not extremely active. But then at the end of the uprising, the School of Philosophy um, was not the one to accept with enthusiasm Tito's speech, after which most of other students of Belgrade University were dancing and and, uh, being very happy to express their love for Tito, so we didn't. In a nationally televised address, Tito effectively squashed the protest after a week by placating the students, conceding some of their points and inviting them to partake in reforms. Most of the students did go back to their classrooms and dorms. And uh, there was this complete change of Communist Party members at the school. The Communist Party wanted to put on the new government of the faculty, the new student organization. And they decided that that could be done by a complete idiot, which I was. So they elected me as a person to organize the elections in a way that only the party, the new party members would be in it. And so the party takes over the uprising, which I accepted and then organized the democratic elections, Athenian style, direct elections. And of course, we elected the so-called extremists, the leader of the student movement and his uh, most prominent friends. And I was also elected. <laughs> well, they had a feeling that they, they understood that I was, uh, I was doing something completely different from what I was supposed to do. So that meant that I could not follow the academic career. I was aware of that. At the same time, I was declared the best student of the Belgrade University. So that comes together in a wonderful <laughs> combination. And also that meant that we had ahead of us a great career of uh, the first student uh, resistance uh, committee ruling the whole school, which ended bad, of course. In a, in a year time, um, the leader was arrested along with others, and there was a process, and I was supposed to be a witness. I went there and had one of my best lectures on the classical Greek etymology. <laughs> After Slepshak defied the orders of Yugoslavia's Communist Party, she continued on the activist path. I was activist uh, in the freedom of expression in the 70s and 80s, especially in the 80s. In 83, I started, uh, in fact, I was commissioned to start an action about uh, death penalty in Yugoslavia, in former Yugoslavia, which we transferred from Belgrade to Ljubljana because the atmosphere was much more open and free in Ljubljana at that time. With the beginning of the war uh, in Yugoslavia, I knew that the only position that I could take was a feminist position, and that is helping everyone in need. I was rather active when the war started, you can imagine, I was rather active in helping the refugees, especially in Ljubljana, receiving them, some people were living with us for a while. Like other activists, in the 1970s, Slapshak suffered physical and career-related consequences over her work. I was arrested several times, but let off. Twice I was arrested because there was a mistake. I was not the girl who spit on Nixon's image in the American Cultural Center. It was not me. So they let me out immediately. <laughs> Unfortunately, I <laughs> I'm sorry, but I was not her. The other time, that was my my thought and my idea. Uh, with two friends, we wrote uh, on the street in which we protested um, when five students from the Kent University in Ohio were killed. You remember that? 
we wrote with little letters um, down with Nero. <laughs> and I was arrested to explain who's Nero. Of course, they knew who Nero was, <laughs> well, the crazy Roman emperor. <laughs> but again, I had one of my lectures and I was released immediately. And there's one episode which is really shameful and horribly funny, uh, which I have to recall. And that is at a certain moment, Mikis Theodorakis, uh, the Greek composer, uh, came to Belgrade to compose music for one of the nasty partisan movies. This is the same composer who scored Zorba the Greek and Serpico. The Yugoslav movie was The Battle of Sutjeska, a 1973 spectacle starring Richard Burton as Josip Brostito. The idea of our committee, we were still head of the student movement, was to kidnap Mikis Theodorakis, to take him to the School of Philosophy and to explain to him that what he was doing was wrong. So yes, we went to the airport. I saw Mikis Theodorakis. He was surrounded with agents. And from the other terrace of, of the airport, our leader, who died last year, Vladimir Mijanovic, waved with his huge hands and said, abort the mission. <laughs> so we aborted the mission. <laughs> well, when you pass 70, you can laugh at that. Okay. <laughs> if this sounds like a bunch of students and graduates playing pranks amidst Yugoslav normalization, well, there were other serious consequences for their actions. And uh, then I was followed by agents in uh, civil clothes, and I was also beaten up in 70 when we were preparing the strike of four schools, and the same evening, I was met by some thugs who beat me up. There was a lot of blood. And uh, that happened also to another girl, which was in the, the organizing committee. So, yes, I was beaten up. But, well, I have a scar now. Also in 1970. I wanted to publish a student's periodical. And Vlada, Vladimir Mianovic, uh, gave the money for that. And me, with my two friends and colleagues... We went on and made a satirical periodical, which was called Frontisterion, which in Greek means the place for thinking or the basket hanging from the ceiling, in which Socrates is reflecting in Aristophanes' comedy, The Clouds. And we were horrible. We were, we were using ancient terms and ancient images to, of course, to ridicule President Tito and others. And the first issue was banned immediately, and it was burned in the yard of the print shop. But we managed to steal some examples uh, beforehand. They accused uh, Vladimir Bianovic of all the happenings during the student uprising, including Frontisterion. Uh, so we all went to the court and said, we did it, I did Frontisterion. And it, another colleague uh, said, I uh, organized the strike, and so on and so on, but it didn't help. They wanted Vlada. And at the same time, also some other friends went to jail. Lazar Stojanovic, the famous film guy, whose um, week of films was uh, presented in MoMA two years ago. And then Daniel Udovicki, another philosopher and author. So there were some four people who just had to go to jail because they were considered the leaders of the whole thing. Vladimir Mijanovic, who died last May, was known as Vlada Revolucija, Vlada the Revolution. A lifelong activist, he was a leader of the 1968 student protests and anti-death penalty advocate. In 1984, he was one of the Belgrade Six, a group of intellectuals who, in an internationally publicized political trial that was in fact part of the inter-republican power struggle in post-Tito Yugoslavia, stood accused of associating to conduct anti-government activities. 
At the time, U.S. officials estimated that there were between 600 and 800 political prisoners in Yugoslavia, most of them accused of some form of hostile or counter-revolutionary activities. Fun fact, to underscore the different paths the regime's opponents took in the 1980s, one of these political prisoners was Vojislav Šešel, who made his name in the 1990s as a war criminal. Lazar Stojanovic was a film director whose early works were part of the Black Wave. His 1971 bricolage movie Plastic Jesus was a scathing critique of the system, depicting Tito as a secular deity and banned until 1990. Stojanovic spent three years in prison for anti-state activities and propaganda. The movie is on my watch list. For now, I am curious about Yugoslav dissidents as a group, or a subculture if you will. Gilles was certainly not the idol of this uh, dissident uh, culture, especially in Belgrade, but there was also similar uh, circle in Zagreb, in Ljubljana and in other cities, and we were all friends and cooperating. There was another uh, thing. We were thinking about humanizing the Marxist uh, ideology of the state. Not revolution, but uh, changing the way uh, state and the party treated people and freedom of expression. That was the main uh, issue. The The second main issue, which appeared uh, years later, a couple of years later, was uh, human rights, because they were obviously crushed in, in many situations. So these were the two grand issues, and many people found themselves uh, intimate with these issues. So it was a culture of, uh, I called it at a certain moment, and I wrote about it as a home literature, we were meeting in, in apartments, in, in our homes, and then reading, uh, performing uh, different uh, artistic or intellectual or philosophical or sociological stuff. Once I had uh, in uh, my apartment, which was 40 square meters. 430 square feet. I had an exhibition of ecological furniture. <laughs> visited by some 150 people. <laughs> My cat went berserk. It was reading of new works also, uh, experimenting with literature, experimenting with music, experimenting with comic opera, with parodic opera, stuff like that. So we were doing all of that because there was no way to publish openly. And uh, the, the opportunity to publish openly happened only after Tito died. Before it was simply impossible. So Manuscripts and ideas were circulating around a certain number of people. We all knew each other. We had different tribunes, open spaces in Belgrade in which we could discuss things. A couple of uh, youth home or student homes in which these dialogues, these open tribunes happened. And they were sometimes followed by the police and sometimes even not. But there was a kind of free market of ideas. And rather soon there was this idea of not a monoparty, but plural party system. And of course, there was a lot of thinking of parliamentary democracy, which we idealized a lot. And uh, there were other ideas. And, you know, there, there's a paradox of Yugoslavia, which uh, means that uh, in Yugoslavia, in the 70s and 80s, almost everything that was written by dissident uh, cultures, in dissident cultures, in um, state socialism, that is Soviet Union and uh, Czechoslovakia and Hungary and Poland and Bulgaria, and was not possible to be published, could come to Yugoslavia, be translated and then published openly. Because Yugoslavia wanted publicly, you know, in the world to 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 
kind of project this image of uh, liberty, which is different from the rest of the socialist world. So they would allow things. But at the same moment, people in the late 70s, four people were uh, arrested for having, one of them had in his library a um, book of uh, Lev Trotsky published in Yugoslavia, translated and published in Yugoslavia, and he was arrested for that. <laughs> so you never knew. Uh, legally, there was no censorship in Yugoslav legislation. But we who were writing and creating texts or performances or whatever, we had to walk in the dark and kind of prevent and pre-sense what was going on and what would be admissible and what not. You really have had to think a lot. In fact, let, let's face it, being dissident meant being intelligent, really, to think about the text, think about the formulations that you could offer that would attend the public you wanted to hear and to read, and at the same time, to blind the watchdogs. Unlike in other socialist countries where employment was compulsory, in the Yugoslav market socialist system, you could lose a job and be unable to find another one. In the late 1970s, unemployment in Yugoslavia stood at 12%, but Slapšak was lucky. In fact, there was a way with which the state dealt with uh, people like me. We were put in institutes, research institutes. So I got a position in, the res- in a research institute, which was filled with career losers like me. <laughs> and as a researcher, I traveled a lot, spent a lot of time in Greece, in, uh, some time also in the U.S., and uh, uh, lots of time in France but also the rest of Europe, I was teaching a lot. But there was already this other alternative culture in Belgrade, kind of dissidency, which was clear. Everybody knew each other. And the life in this decade was slightly similar to the life in in other uh, regimes in a way that we were followed. Uh, We were um, mingling with secret texts printed for our people, stuff like that. We were playing... um, Guerrilla, city guerrilla in a way. There was another way the Yugoslav regime hampered people's freedom of movement. Authorities would confiscate their red passport. My passport was taken in 68 and I got it once in 73. (laughs) And then it was taken again and I got it back in a year and then it was taken again and so on and so on. So there were measures to discipline us in a way. There were something like uh, 200 and something people in Belgrade who were deprived of passports. And then in 75, there was this uh, Helsinki conference in Belgrade. And our really, the spiritual leader of everything, which was close to action and response to the system, was Sergei Popovich. Unfortunately, he died uh, some 10 years ago, a lawyer a great lawyer and a great mind. So he had the idea that during this conference, we uh, wrote a a letter to this conference about our passports and we got the passports in one week, all of us. So there was, you you can't imagine the explosion. Lazar Stojanovic went to India and so on and so on. So we dispersed all over the world. That was really, really important for all of us. Slapšak went to Greece where she spent several years off and on. She was also there when Tito died. Well, I was on the edge of my nerves, I must say, because we knew he was dying. And my husband went back to Yugoslavia and he was coming back and he passed the border and he still heard the sirens, which uh, on the Greek side, he heard the sirens, which declared that Tito was dead. (laughs) And then we went to the embassy 
And then I saw something that really shook me uh, for the rest of my life, I must say. There were Greek, uh, old Greek partisans, fighters, old communists, who came to the embassy and they were not let in to sign their grief. They were standing outside and some of them were crying. These were old men. And all of them were wearing what I would call funeral clothes, the best clothes they, they had. Obviously poor people, obviously out of the society for quite a long time at that moment. They were, as you know, they were banned from Greece and many sent to Soviet Union and so on and so on. Well, they were there, unhappy, crying. And for the first time in my life, I said to myself, am I right about hating Tito? (laughs) There are some people who had serious reasons to adore him, like Greeks, because he preserved the independence of Yugoslavia, which they did not. After Yalta, they were the part of the Western world with the worst consequences of it. They considered him a heroic fighter, which we were constantly forgetting. And from that moment on, I'm, I must say, uh, the whole thing of hating Tito was cracking a bit. Now I'm more uh, prone to, to, to admit some objective um, things that he did. But at that time, that was the shock that really made me see uh, the other part. Otherwise, we came there. We um, wrote down our condolences, and then we had feast. <laughs> we went to to Kifisia, to the um, wonderful patisserie there. Uh, we had all the sweets that we could eat. Then we went to the festival of Woody Allen films. <laughs> At that time, he was making crazy comedies, <laughs> not bourgeois stuff, disgusting. <laughs> and then we went, of course, in the evening, we went to Rebetico, was good Greek music, we danced, and, well, next day we, we slept. <laughs> Forty years later, many, and in some places most people across former Yugoslavia, view Tito in a positive light. And if you're a regular listener of this podcast, which I sincerely hope you are or are becoming, you know that Yugo-nostalgia in all its varied forms, or at least a positive evaluation of Yugoslavia, is real. So of course I want to hear Slapshak's take on these phenomena. Well, you know, it's very typical of understanding of ordinary people, understanding of memory and history. Uh, when I was a kid, there were older people who were telling us that the ideal time of, of uh, Yugoslavia was Franz Josef's rule, Austro-Hungarian rule of, of this country. So it's, a, it's this type of, of remembering your youth and thinking that it was better then than now. That's a good portion of uh, this nostalgia if we, if we try to, to deconstruct it and see what are the elements? The other element is uh, the fact the fact that uh, uh, social divisions were not so strong, that people could not be fired uh, that easily, that there were workers' rights, that there were workers, some workers' privileges, that the schooling system was really, really good and without any costs till the doctorate and later that uh, there was this thing about non-aligned countries. Uh, which was a good idea with uh, some bad practices, but it was a good idea, 
which unfortunately did not culturally develop very much. Otherwise, we could have had excellent cultural relations with Asia and Africa. And it's wrong that we didn't, that it remained only on the highest level of diplomacy and politics. And uh, there's uh, uh, the sense of equality that was really embedded in our everyday life, which doesn't exist anymore. So uh, these are the elements which construct a rather strong feeling of nostalgia. nostalgia, And then people fill it in with uh, images and personal memories and the glory that is always of the past. The same goes for women's rights, one of Slapshack's core areas of interest. Oh, definitely. Yes. <laughs> Once there were rights, there were rights which were legalized, so they could not be destroyed, and the destruction of these rights started with new states. There's no doubt of it. And this backlash of uh, women's rights is visible everywhere in all the post-socialist countries. Poland is probably the worst case today. But uh, it, it uh, does say everything about the concept and ideological text, if you know, unwritten, untold, oral ideological text, which serve nationalists today. So unfortunately, uh, this loss of rights is horrible after finally the women's rights became human rights <laughs> in early 90s. So uh, this is something that uh, is kind of usual in a uh, movement for, for equalities. And it means just, you know, several steps back and then you have to fight back and to come to the previous point, and then ask for more. The truth is that the tolerance of uh, LGBT in Slovenia before the war was maybe stronger than today. Although uh, legally it looks rather good, but there are still some rights that were not realized, and there are still some groups that insist very much on uh, going back to Middle Ages. As you heard in episode 36, Dream of the Yugoslav 80s, the decade after Tito's death saw a flourishing of pop culture in the first half that in the second transmogrified into nationalist discourses. There were old dissidents who were anti-nationalists uh, and pro-Yugoslav, and in, in that capacity they met the old communists <laughs> who were not totally corrupted and who were also Yugoslav-oriented, uh, Yugoslavia-oriented, and this huge new group which was uh, asking for national rights. Many people in culture decided that they would uh, activate themselves in sense of democracy and so on and so on. And some of these people who were hiding or not visible during 68 and later in the risky period now we're uh, openly demanding national and historical rights instead of human rights. And immediately that meant origin, um, territorial ambitions, and so on and so on. So there was a huge uh, split in the dissidents after Tito's death. And the ideas of us Serbs uh, being the most uh, suffering and uh, needing the historical and having historical rights to certain territories and stuff like that appeared very, very early. I can tell you from 84. So I was kind of dissident from this group of dissidents from the beginning. And by 86, I was 
well known as anti-nationalist, anti-Serb, of course, because that mean, meant that, pro-Albanian, and so on and so on. Uh, I was already excluded from that huge dissident group, so uh, the defeat was quite obvious. And Milosevic was on the horizon already in, in 86, and then he became kind of leader figure, and I remember some of my uh, older friends from Academia of Sciences telling me quite seriously that they considered Milosevic as a communist who would lead them to democracy. Could you believe that? And they were all, secretly or not, or publicly, they were all propagating this idea of national division of Yugoslavia as a unrightful composition of people, of nations which do not gather well. It, it, was, it was disgusting. It was really disgusting. And also something that really hurt me very deeply was a horrible basement of the level of discourse we had. Beforehand, we were intelligent. And uh, on the other hand, this discourse of, of nationalism became horribly simplified, horribly brutal, horribly stupid. And this stupidity overtook some of the minds that I considered that I considered really, really excellent, really capable of understanding and formulating things. So uh, it was a really horrible backlash. And many clever people just decided that uh, they would uh, profit much more uh, with being nationalists. So I knew that that would end very bad for me, and it did, in a way that they fired me, they organized a kind of pseudo-juridical process, and so on and so on. I was saved by, by some clever women, but, but I knew I was a loser. In her telling, a case was fabricated against her in 1988 of embezzlement of grant funds in an organization she worked for at the time. The trial ended up getting dismissed due to a lack of evidence, but by then the damage had already been done. And the question was, should I stay there or not? Uh, because there was this group of losers, pro-Yugoslav people, uh, anti-nationalist people, who were rather strong intellectually. Of course, they were stronger than anybody else, because everybody else went to compromise with this general stupidity being introduced. But you must understand that Yugoslavia at that moment was in a very specific social professional situation concerning to media, which became the most important element is in these changings. And that is that every industrial unit, every working unit in Yugoslavia had of some importance, had its own periodical and paid journalists who were working for it. Suddenly this huge number of media and this uh, even huger number of uh, journalists uh, would lose their jobs. And of course they, they decided to go with the flow. Beforehand they were writing for the Communist Party, now they were writing for nationalists. And the exaggerations were unbelievable. And also the falsification of history, uh, the revisionism uh, which went with it. Slapshak wrote in support of human rights of the Albanian minority in Kosovo, which in the nationalist fever of the late 1980s immediately labeled her a bad Serb or anti-Serb. Every authoritarian nationalist regime adopts the if you're not with us, you're against us rhetoric, of course. But in Slapshak's case, it contributed to her exile. No, I never felt the need to leave Serbia. I was losing my friends in Serbia. 
in a rhythm of three per week. <laughs> I knew that I should stay and help the movement. But then at the last moment, I must say, I was bitterly attacked in media. That was usual. That was not something new. But uh, I decided to go with my men, <laughs> which sounds horrible for a feminist, but okay, I did it. That that was my reason to, to flee Serbia. The other was that only by fleeing Serbia, I would be able to help my mom who stayed there because I couldn't earn any money in Serbia. So the only way would be to, to be outside and to send her some. Slapshark left Serbia in November 1991. That was the siege of Vukovar, and my husband and I just returned from Greece and finally understood that we didn't have a chance to stay there. Via Hungary was the only way. We went to the frontier and spent the whole day looking for the most drunken officer at the frontier. To make sure her husband would not be apprehended and dragooned into Serbia's military. And uh, we found it at the end, and then we came through Hungary to the Slovenian border, and then we came somehow to Slovenia. And in Slovenia, I was not the person who hates Serbs the most. I was just a Serb. (laughs) So I had to live through that too. I was attacked immediately, and I was attacked continuously in Slovenia till I went to the USA. And when I came back, uh, the war was over, uh, finishing, and uh, it came slightly more tolerable, but uh, I'm still silenced, I'm still attacked, and so on and so on. Now I'm engaged very much in the protest movement in Ljubljana, uh, which is about uh, crushing this government, if possible, which uh, used the epidemic situation to introduce some unbearable measures in Slovenia, which still has some memories of democracy and citizens' invention. For over a year now, the good people of Slovenia have been protesting against the government of Janez Janša, which has been doing its best to curb media and judicial freedoms, conduct corrupt privatizations, and generally acting in a distinctly authoritarian ways. Janša is a big self-professed fan of one Donald Trump, and has been compared to Hungary's Viktor Orban. It is obvious that inside the European Union, there's an axe being uh, formed uh, these days, uh, from Baltic to the Adriatic Sea, and it consists of Poland, uh, Czech Republic, uh, Slovakia, partly Hungary, which is the leader of the movement, and uh, there should be Slovenia, former Yugoslav countries, Serbia, and other countries till till the south. Uh, and this axe should oppose European Union's uh, libertarian laws and habits, and also legislation considering, for instance, women and LGBT and also some other measures which would give uh, more space to national legislation like in Poland, which all goes toward uh, conservatism, Christian, but not democratic parties, more uh, repression, more repression of media, more repression of alternative uh, groups, more repression, and of course, the total ban of the left in any possible form. This is an anti-communism which was very, very well defined by Franz Timmermans uh, recently, just after he had such experience in Slovenia, when he says that uh, uh, 
the worst uh, anti-communists are in fact using communist methods, which is true, which is exactly what <laughs> Yanshe is doing. And, you know, he was at the time of his trial and his, his uh, problems, uh, he was, in fact, he was the member of the party and one of the most, uh, uh, let's say, uh, stubborn, single-minded, uh, single-oriented uh, servant of the party type. And he didn't progress very much. A funny, sad story. The righty Yansha was a lefty Yugoslav dissident. In 1983, he was expelled from the party for criticizing the Yugoslav military. In 1985, the authorities took away his passport and he was barred from employment in state organizations and from publishing. He became active in the pacifist and environmental movements, and in 1988, he and three others were convicted and sentenced to 18 months for leaking a classified military document to the press. That same year, he came to Belgrade to request help from the local dissidents who happened to be Mijanovic and Slapšak. Anyway, the Ljubljana trial triggered mass protests and spawned a liberal democratic opposition in Slovenia. Today, his ideology is a kind of mixture of far, far neoliberalism and a political repression, control of media, control of free thinking and expression, control of arts, because his group doesn't like modern arts and modern culture, and so on and so on. So it's deep conservatism, provincialism, populism. And you name it, everything that was absolutely foreign to Slovenia in the 80s, <laughs> let's face it, it's really the, the contrary of what Slovenia was in the 80s. And that's why he used the, the epidemic to introduce uh, a number of measures which were not very efficient in uh, vaccination, for instance, uh, which let many old people die in uh, homes for elderly which uh, constricted and uh, restricted the, the space of, of uh, moving, of mobility of, of citizens without any reason. It's sheer stupidity, some of these measures, and they were changing from day to day. There was no connection with the real specialists in the field of epidemiology, and uh, the whole system just presented its incapacity of organizing the, the bureaucracy, the, the simple bureaucracy, the simple way of doing things as a state would do. It's a total mess. And uh, we know, we see that he is undisputable leader, which nobody ever criticized in his own party. This is not, this is not natural. This is not good. This is not possible not to criticize inside your own party. Uh, and uh, this is the main signal that this guy is a despot. But it really explains his position. He simply commands everybody in his own party, and uh, he nurtures the frustrations of people by his media center, which produces garbage five years now. It's a method of Goebbelsian propaganda to make people feel frustrated, even if they are not, to play with their natural, already existing frustrations, and to orient everything against some enemy. And it's used in controlling citizens. There's a constant commotion and confusion between the different parts of the government, of the government uh, forces, of the government services, of the government representatives, 
And in such a confusion, citizens simply naturally turn against the leader. Activists organized a referendum which took place on July 11th on amendments to the Waters Act. The law, initiated by the Yansha government and passed by the parliament, would have had detrimental effects on the environment. Over 86% of voters 86 the act, delivering a crushing defeat to the government. In the run-up to the referendum, thousands of households, including slapshucks, lost their internet connection for several days. There was suspicion of tampering by the government. What's for certain is that it forced us to reschedule our conversation a couple of times. Anyway. You've been against Tito, you've been against Milosevic, you're, you're against Yansha, you know, you've been fighting uh, a good fight all your life. Aren't you tired? No. <laughs> no, I'm not. Because, uh, uh, well, I avoided all the possibilities to become a well-known academic, uh, dignified and so on. So I refused everything that was offered to me by any of the state systems, so I should not uh, uh, be different now. Uh, my time is limited, and at this time I would like to, to write uh, all the novels that I imagined and projected and all the studies and uh, translations that I want to do. So, yes, if six months are given to me, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> You've given a lot of interviews over the years. Is there a question that no one has asked you that you wish someone had asked you? And, and what would your answer be to that? That's too much for me. I would just uh, make a plea. I would like to be translated. <laughs> That's my, my great problem. I would love to have my novels and some maybe of my anthropological books translated. Anthropological books, okay, I can translate them myself if I have enough time, but my novels, that's another problem. Uh, so it's a plea, not, not a question. There are hundreds of questions I would like to answer. To. <laughs> well, I can be horribly banal and profit-minded at the end, Okay. <laughs> Bruno Bušić, Vlado Dabčević, Enver Hadri, Pavluško Imširović, Mihailo Mihailov, Dragomir Olović, Borislav Pekić, Pero Simić. The names of Yugoslav-era dissidents and other opponents of the regime tend not to be household names. And yes, most of them were indeed men. They're dying out. Hopefully their memory, the record of their activism, the history of their resistance such as it was, will not die out with them. And of course, let us not forget those thousands of Yugoslavs who weren't authors, academics or activists who protested by emigrating. Nowadays, activists in the countries that comprise Yugoslavia are free to demonstrate against their governments, to say or write whatever they want, to propose or enact changes without having to worry about losing their jobs or passports or going to jail. It is the work of those who came before them, their parents' and grandparents' generations, that made this possible. And if you are in publishing or a translator, let's bring the novels of Svetlana Slapshuk and the book about cabbage to audiences outside former Yugoslavia, shall we? Next on Remembering Yugoslavia. I do not want to go abroad for going abroad. If I would go abroad, it would be with the purpose of working for the region and for my country. The citizens of Bosnia and Herzegovina are leaving the country in droves. How bad is the problem? What's causing this exodus? And is there anything that can be done about it? On the next episode of Remembering Yugoslavia, emigration from Bosnia and Herzegovina and how to fix it. Tune in wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe to make sure you don't miss out.
that's all for this episode of Remembering Yugoslavia. Thank you for listening. Find additional information and a transcript of this episode at rememberingyugoslavia.com slash podcast. Remember to like Remembering Yugoslavia on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, write a review on Apple Podcasts, or just tell a friend. They'll love you for it. Outro music courtesy of Robert Petrich. Additional music by Poddington Bear and Petar Argic licensed under Creative Commons. I am Petar Korchniak. Ciao. Thank you.